0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Fort St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message The Lord's Supper. All right, well, the day before Jesus was crucified, he wanted to share a very special meal there with his disciples. The meal was actually the Jewish Passover feast. The Jewish Passover feast was simply an annual meal that all Jews observed, and what it did is that it reminded them for 1,500 years, from Moses all the way to Jesus, the Passover feast every year reminded the Jews that God had delivered their ancestors from their slavery in Egypt. And so the Passover meal that Jesus shared that night with his disciples is now affectionately called by Christians the Lord's supper. And so Luke tells us that Jesus sent Peter and John on ahead of the rest of the disciples in order to prepare for the Passover feast. Have you ever wondered what Peter and John did to prepare for that meal? The Bible doesn't give us the details, but we know from Jewish history that they would go and they would buy a lamb, and then they would take that lamb down to the temple. And the priest, the the Levite there, would slaughter the lamb, and then he would divide the lamb into three parts. Peter and John would then take their portion of the lamb, the meat, and they would roast it, and they would take it to the upper room. They would take, check this out, the roasted lamb, they would take the unleavened bread, they would take the bitter herbs, they would take all the sauces and the wine, they would go up to the upper room and they were ready to enjoy that meal that night with the Lord. And the Lord was so looking forward to celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And he knew that he was about to transform the meaning of a meal. And I want you to picture the upper room in your mind. Now, as you walk in, if you put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew, as you walk into the upper room where Jesus and his disciples are, here's what you're not going to see. You're not going to see Leonardo da Vinci's (laughs) Last Supper painting where they're all sitting in chairs at a Western high table with halos over their head or whatever, you know, like all on one side, kind of getting ready to pose for a photo. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you walk in, what you're going to see is a triclinium. It's a low table and it's shaped in a sea. And so, around the low table, on three sides of the table, there would be a couch or pillows, and so Jesus and his 12 disciples would be lounged around the triclinium. And on that night, Jesus, he took the bread, and he gave thanks, he broke it, and this is what he said. Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, the third cup of the Passover Seder feast. After supper, he took the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he gave thanks. And this is what he said. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, help me out here, next two words. New covenant. Thank God we're not under the old covenant anymore. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now it's important to understand that with these words, Jesus transformed the meaning of the meal. He transformed the the meaning from remembering that God had delivered their ancestors from Egyptian slavery to now how God had delivered his people from their sins how God had delivered his people from physical slavery to now how God, through the broken body and through the shed blood of Jesus, now God, for any repentant sinner, will absolutely deliver you from your slavery to sin. The Passover meal has been transformed into the Lord's Supper, and the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. Jesus came, he wrapped himself in human flesh, God of very gods. He hung on a cross. What did he do? He initiated a new covenant. And some of you guys don't know the Bible very well, so you don't really understand what's the big deal. I, for one, you know, as a religious leader, I'm so grateful that we're not under the old covenant this morning. Because if we were under the old covenant this morning, then I would be standing here in some kind of robe and you guys would be bringing me a bunch of lambs. And we'd spend the day slaughtering a bunch of lambs and sacrificing those lambs on an altar. That's what they did. Millions of lambs for 1500 years were slaughtered as a way to atone or cover the sins of the people. But guess what? Jesus is now our Passover lamb. Let's look at what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For indeed, Christ, our what? Passover was sacrificed for us. No longer do we have to come to God through a bunch of animal sacrifices. No, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was sacrificed one time and one time only, and it was sufficient to appease or propitiate the wrath of a holy God against the sins of the world. It's called the penal substitutionary atonement. And if you ever go to a church that denies the penal substitutionary atonement, you need to get out of that church. Because here's the truth, Jesus had to die. His body had to be broken and his blood had to be shed for you and I to have any hope of going to heaven. He's the only way. And we worship him this morning. Now, communion is a big deal. Here's why. Because, and if you haven't done this, you need to do this. You've got to turn from your sins. It's called repentance. And you need to, by faith, give your life to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, God the Father takes the blood of his son. He applies it to the doorposts of your heart, so to speak. And then when you take your last breath, God looks down on you He doesn't see your sin, he sees the blood of his son and his judgment passes over you. Christ is our Passover, Christ is our Passover. We are in the new covenant and we rejoice. Now the early Christians, including the Corinthians, they observed communion regularly. And so now in this portion of the letter, and as I said, next week in chapter 11, Paul's gonna talk about communion. He does it for two reasons. First of all, he does it because he's got some very important principles to teach the church. He also does it to correct the aberrant behavior of the church. And so let's dig in now in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing, talking about the communion cup, which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, that word communion, if you were reading out of a Greek New Testament, it would say koinonia, right? Koinonia, what is is koinonia? It's fellowship. So let's read the verse again and substitute communion with fellowship. Hey, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Here's what breaks my heart, is that most Christians don't understand that when we gather together for communion, like we're gonna do at the end of the service today, that something very special is gonna happen. Spiritually speaking, we're gonna become one with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. This is not some religious ritual you tack on at the end of the service and you do it because you got to. No, understand the meaning behind this. Two of the guys that I read every week, here's what they have to say about the verse we just read. Warren Wearsby, quote, when the believer partakes of the cup and the loaf at the Lord's table, he is in a spiritual way having, what's the word? Fellowship with the body and the blood of Christ. By remembering Christ's death, the believer enters into, what's the word? Communion. Communion with the risen Lord. Look at John Phillips' comment on that verse. When we drink the cup, there's a spiritual sharing in the blood of Christ. When we break the bread, there is a spiritual sharing of the body of Christ. And so, ladies and gentlemen, nothing pictures our communion, our oneness with Jesus Christ, and our communion and oneness with one another. Nothing pictures that better than communion. Look at verse 17. He says, for, the, for we, though many, many in the church, are one bread and one body, for we are all, for we all partake of that one bread. And so what you got to understand is that in that culture, man, when you had a meal with somebody, it meant a lot more than it does today. In that culture, when you sat down, let's say you, you come over in my house and you sit down and you're on that side of the table, I'm on this side of the table, and there's a loaf of bread. And I take a piece of that bread and you take a piece of that same bread and then you eat it and I eat it and the same bread goes inside of you and me, and we digest it, what's happening? We're becoming one with the bread. It's going inside of us. And we're becoming one with one another. That's the way that culture understood that. And it's the same thing, hey, with communion. In a little while, when you come forward and you receive, I receive, and all of us receive of the one bread, the bread that represents Christ, When you take that which represents Christ and it goes inside of you, symbolically, you're becoming one with Christ. Spiritually, you're becoming one with Christ, but you're not just becoming one with Christ. I'm taking the bread too, so you're becoming one with your pastor. And everybody else in this room is taking the same bread, and so we're all becoming one. Communion shows what we have in common that all of us here, I hope, believe with all of our hearts that Christ, God in the flesh, that his body was broken and his blood was shed as our only hope of eternal redemption. We have that in common. And that's what we're doing as we get together and we receive these elements. Now, what the Christians experienced during communion, it's very similar to what the Jews experienced In the Old Testament. Look at verse 18. He says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And so Paul here is talking about the peace offering. So please follow what's going on in your Bibles now. He's going back to Old Testament times. And what Paul is saying is that when a Jew um, offered the peace offering at the tabernacle and later on at the temple, what happened is that he would bring the animal to the priest, and the priest would divide that animal into three parts, okay? The meat, part of the meat, would go on the altar under the fire, and it would be burnt, and as the smoke ascended up, Into the sky, the Bible says, it was like a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Yeah, the Lord, Yahweh, the one and only true God. And so Yahweh had a part in the meal. The other portion of the meat was eaten by the priest. The other portion of the meat was for you, And your family, and so as you sat down with your family and you had whatever it was, roasted lamb or whatever, as you're eating that lamb, you know God had a part of the meal, the priest had a part of the meal, and now me and my family are having a part of the meal. It's going inside of all of us. We are all becoming one. We're partakers of the altar. And so Paul brings up the New Testament practice of communion, He brings up the Old Testament practice of the peace offering. And now, he's gonna bring up the pagan practice of worshiping false gods, which apparently was a big problem in the first century and even in the church. Look at verse 19 right now. He says, and I gotta give you a little bit of background, so if I could just have your attention for just a second so you understand what's going on here. In that first century Greek town, ancient Greeks, a Greek town of Corinth, you need to understand that paganism was everywhere, and they worshiped many gods, and there's pagan temples everywhere, and there was often these public festivals to whatever pagan god, and some in the church were going down and participating in the pagan festival for the false god, And so now with that in your mind, look at verse 19. He says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to, what's the next word? Demons. How many of you guys believe demons are real? If you don't, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. They're real. And so, verse 20, the things the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you, church, to have fellowship with who? Demons. Christians can have fellowship with demons. Yep, right there in black and white doesn't say you can be possessed by a demon. He's saying, I'm warning you, I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, right? You can't go down on Saturday and participate in the pagan festival and eat the meat offered to some false god on Saturday and then come into church and participate in communion on Sunday. He's correcting them here. You can't do that, he says. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So again, here's the context. In ancient Greece, they were polytheistic. Ancient Rome, ancient world, most of them, polytheism, right? They worship many gods, and there's these pagan altars and pagan temples all over the Roman Empire to all these different gods, little g, and in and around those pagan temples, they would sacrifice animals to the pagan god. I was reading back when we, were, when we were in chapter eight, how somebody offered like hundreds of oxen to Zeus. And so they would have these, as I said earlier, citywide festivals to these pagan gods. It was very real in that culture. I wanted to give you a little taste of if you lived in the first century in your mail, you could get a, an invitation to a pagan feast. Here's an authentic one. (laughs) Cherimon, that's some sort of high priest, invites you to a meal at the table of Lord Serapis. False. God, little g, Egyptian slash Greek God. In the temple of Serapis, so there's actually a temple for this God, tomorrow the 15th from nine o'clock onwards. So it's, it's very real in the, the culture that Paul's writing to here. Now here's what's going on with a bunch of Christians in the church at Corinth. Their attitude is this. Hey man, on Saturday, if I wanna go down to the pagan festival down in the city, outside of the pagan, uh, the pagan temple, I wanna party with my friends, throw back a few and have a steak that's offered to a God, it doesn't matter. The false God's not real. I know the idol's not real. And so if I want to drink and I want to eat the, the, the meat and I want to hang out with my friends, I'm, strong, I'm a strong enough Christian that I can do that and I can do that on Saturday and then I can come in here on Sunday and I can participate in communion. Paul says, time out. <laughs> Look at verse 20. He says, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to who? Demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Verse 22, if you do, you're provoking the Lord to jealousy. And so even though idols aren't real, okay? Everybody here I hope knows idols are not real. False gods are not real. I've been having my devotions in Isaiah. It's been so encouraging to me because God says, I'm the only God. You say, which God? Yahweh, the only one. He said, before me, there was no other God and there shall be no other God after me. And he said, and I came from eternity. You know, just in case anybody thinks that somebody created Yahweh, no. He's the eternal, almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal God. And he comes from eternity, and he's the only one. So all idols are false. All false gods are absolutely false. Paul knew that. Okay, but even though idols aren't real, demons are real. So what is, what's one of the millions of plans that demons have to get Christians off track? Here's what they do. Does anybody know the first commandment, Exodus 20? You shall have no other gods before me. Who said that? Yahweh. You shall have no other gods before me. What do demons want to do? Get people to have some gods other than Yahweh. So what do they do? They masquerade behind the idol. The idol's not real. Zeus isn't real. Serapis isn't real. All the other false gods aren't real, but the demons are real and they're masquerading behind those idols. And so if a pagan goes to a public pagan party for some false god, and they publicly eat the meat offered to that false god, they're not fellowshipping with the false god. The false god's not real. What are they doing? Listen, listen. They're fellowshipping with demons. Demons. They're fellowshipping with demons. Are you following the flow of thought of Paul? Don't take a verse out of context in the Bible, put it on your refrigerator, and make it say whatever you want it to say. You're being unfaithful to the word of God. Follow the flow. What's the flow? Paul talks about how we have fellowship with the Lord. As we participate in communion, verses 16 and 17. He then talks about how the Jews had fellowship with God, the true God, through the peace offering in verse 18. And now he's saying, if you're messing around at the pagan party, you're having fellowship, you're exposing yourself to demonic activity. Somebody says, but I'm a strong enough Christian, I can handle it. Look at the end of verse 22. Are we stronger than God? Now, I don't think anybody here this afternoon is going to go to some public festival for a false god and eat a steak in honor of that false god. At least I hope not. I mean, I don't know anything like that going on on the Treasure Coast. So how in the world do we apply what was very real in the first century, how do we apply that to 2015 to our lives? The question is this. If you're with me, say amen here. Okay, are you participating in other things that will expose you to demonic activity? Are you playing around with a Ouija board? You say, but Pastor Mike is so cool. The thing just moves by itself. Yeah. What do you think causing that? Are you looking at Tarot cards. You can buy them at Walmart. You get involved in magic. Well, I don't do the black stuff, just the white stuff. Are you a born again Christian or not? Are you getting into astrology? I didn't say astronomy. I personally feel we need more Christian astronomers, right? I'm talking about astrology. Are you putting your your horoscope up on your Facebook page? Are you thinking about going to see a psychic? Maybe your loved one passed away recently. Are you thinking about going down to the, the, the spiritist and trying to make contact with your dead loved one? And I go on and on and on, but... Listen, if you participate in those types of things, at some level or another, you are exposing yourself to demonic activity. And Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I would not have you fellowshipping with demons. God's word is very clear on this subject. Please look at Deuteronomy up on the screen. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire or, here it is, practices witchcraft, Or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead, for all who do these things are an what's the word? An abomination to the Lord. And you might say, but but Pastor Mike, you don't understand That, that stuff is, it's so fascinating to me. Yeah, a fishing lure is so fascinating to the bass until he takes a bite and he's being led to destruction. And so, hey, don't fool around with this stuff. This is what the Bible says. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And so, amen or oh me, right? I'm glad five of you are saying amen. Look at verse 23. He says, all things are lawful for me, hey, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And in case you're thinking, well, it's my life, I'll do whatever I want, verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And so before you engage in any type of activity, that's questionable, ask yourself, is this helpful, verse 23? Is it edifying, end of verse 23? And will it offend another Christian who has a weak conscience? You remember the whole story back in chapter 8, right? If a first century Corinthian believer on Saturday goes down to the public pagan party and they're drinking and they're eating a steak that's been offered to who knows what God. And they think, I'm strong enough. I know none of this stuff is real. I'm just hanging out with my friends, trying to be a witness. But what happens when brother so-and-so down from the church who was saved out of paganism, right? And he sees you eating that meat. What's he gonna do? Uh, brother so-and-so is eating the meat. And so... I guess I can too. And he's going to eat and the enemy's going to attack him. He was saved out of that. And all of a sudden now he's on a big guilt trip and he's thinking, oh no, I've gone back to my pagan ways. Guilt, guilt, guilt. It's all Satan. Shame, shame, shame. And the Lord is saying through Paul, hey, don't just think about yourself. Before you make a decision, think about other people. Now that's really applicable to right now. Okay, because everybody in this room, including myself, we're gonna be tempted to get involved in questionable activities. Okay, before you do that, before you step over that line, do me a favor, don't just think about yourself. Here's an idea, think about your kids. Think about your spouse. Because the negative repercussions of your bad decision is gonna ripple And it's not just your life, it's gonna negatively affect the people who love you. How many tears have been shed by loved ones because their loved one began to make a series of bad choices when they should have just walked away. And so hey, whether we're talking about meat sacrifice to idols or maybe a TV show or a movie or certain music or certain books or certain websites, if it's not helpful, if it's not edifying, if it offends another believer, we should walk away. Look at verse 25. He's now switching from the public arena of eating meat publicly at a pagan festival to what do you do about the privacy of your own home? Okay, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. That's what you do. (laughs) Asking no questions for conscience sake for the earth is the lord's in all of its fullness. I'm not going to spend any time on this because we covered it in chapter 8. But hey, when you're talking about the privacy of your own home, if you're in the 1st century Corinthian, you go into the meat market, you see all this meat. Some of it came from the pagan temple, some of it didn't. Don't ask the butcher, "Hey man, where did that steak come from?" Paul says, "Don't ask any questions. What you don't know can't hurt you. The earth's is the lord's in the fullness thereof." Thereof, buy the steak, take it home, pray over it, eat it. It's the privacy of your home. You're not publicly eating it. You're not endorsing some false god. You're just eating a piece of meat in the privacy of your home. Verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question, for conscience sake. Okay, so here's a different scenario. Somebody invites you over who's not a believer and you're sitting down at their table and the guy's wife comes out with a steak. You do not ask the wife, where'd you get the steak? That's rude. Just eat it. No questions. End of verse 27. But, okay, if there's a weak, tender conscience Christian at the dinner party. And he says to you in verse 28, this was offered to idols. And he's freaking out. Don't eat it. For the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other. And so he says, hey, I don't want you to offend the, the, the brother with the weaker conscience, the tender conscience, when you make a decision, keep him or her in mind. Now, how many of you guys know that basically we're selfish people? How many of you guys understand basically we're self-centered people? And so a lot of the people in Corinth who received this letter, they're thinking, don't tell me how to live my life. And Paul anticipates Their objections. And so here's some of their objections in verse 29. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Right? Give me a break, Paul. Here's another objection. Verse 30. If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Right? Leave me alone. I'll do whatever I want to do. That's the attitude. And Paul says, well, let me answer your objections in verse 31 and give you a Universal principle, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? Whether you eat, whether you drink, don't just think about yourself and how it's gonna affect you. There's other people in your life Whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. What what brings God glory when we think about other people before we make decisions about questionable matters? And so verse 32, he says, give no offense, either to the Jews, don't offend them, or to the Greeks, don't offend them, or to the church of God, don't offend them. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be, what's the last word? Saved. And so your testimony is on the line when you make decisions. How do you guys understand when you're in your neighborhood or your workplace or hanging out with family that doesn't know the Lord, that every, they're looking at everything you do? There's so many issues that come up that are questionable, that are ethical in nature, They have some kind of moral substance and everybody's got an opinion. Okay, so be very careful as the um, worship team comes up and I really want you to fix your attention on me because there's gonna be ushers coming up now and getting ready for communion, but I want you to hold tight here as we prepare to receive communion. So if you're with me right now, say amen. amen. Okay, don't miss this. All of us are gonna be in a situation in our life where we're tempted to get involved in questionable activities. All of us, none of us are exempt. And so before you make that decision to get involved in that questionable activity, I'm gonna show you straight from the Bible from our passage today, some questions that you need to ask yourself. Okay, this is so applicable to where you are right now, where I am. Before you make a decision to engage in that questionable activity, From verse 23, you ask yourself, will it help and edify me? And then from verse 24, you ask, will it help and edify my brother? And then from verse 31, you ask yourself, will it glorify Jesus Christ? What I'm about to do, is this really going to glorify Jesus Christ? Number 32, is it going to offend other people in the church if they knew I was doing it? And again, I know I know the flesh I don't care what people down at the church think. Uh, go back and read verse thirty two and then verse 33 will it hurt your witness He says he wants Paul says, I want everybody to get saved and I don't want to ever be some, do something that will make them point their finger at me and say that's why I don't get saved right there and so Ask yourself those questions and then pray through those questions. Listen, before you watch that TV show. Now, I don't care if I get 100 emails this week of people calling me legalistic, there's TV shows on right now that you and I have no business watching. None at all. Why? It doesn't edify, it doesn't help you or your family, it certainly does not glorify Christ. There's certain movies that you need to ask yourself those questions before you go to that movie. There's certain music that you listen to, you should ask yourself those questions. Certain books to read, certain websites to frequent before you frequent those websites. Certain concerts that you go to. I'm not talking about a Christian concert. Are you saying all concerts are of the, listen, I'm not making any rules, I'm just saying, would you go before the Lord authentically with an authentic heart and ask these questions before you engage in that activity? Hey, by the way, if you wanna go see a good movie, go see War Room this week. That's an awesome movie. It'll lift your soul, it'll encourage you. Before you go to the party, before you publicly drink alcohol. See, because here's, here's what's going on. Some of you guys are authentic born-again Christians, right? But you're not moving very fast in the Christian race. And you're getting a little frustrated because you see other people and they're flying down the track for the Lord. But you're doing this. And you say, why? Why are they running so fast? Why are they growing so much faster than me? Well, here's why. Those questionable activities you're engaging in are like a ball and chain on your leg. And what you need to do before you receive the communion elements tonight is you need to take the the cutter and you need to cut the chain. And you need to to pray to the Lord before you receive the communion elements this, this, this morning. And you need to say, Lord, I am done with that, right? Because what's important is not what satisfies me. What's important is that I end this race full speed for your glory. Is that how you wanna live? Is that how you want to live? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.